Well, depending on what service you came to this morning, you may not have been introduced to Mark's wife. I'll have her stand in just a moment. Uh, one of the things I like to do uh, when I'm in town and I'm able to introduce our, our guests is maybe tell you something about them that you wouldn't know, even if you happen to know a lot about them. And uh, for uh, Mark, he put himself through school. Uh, he was planning on uh, being a doctor, went through uh, in, in a sort of a pre-med program, and the Lord turned him around and he ended up uh, finishing uh, studies with x-ray technology, and that's how he put him through sem- himself through uh, seminary. What would surprise you is to know that he, he flunked English grammar uh, going through school, and that would be a surprise to you. His wife, Barbie, is a missionary kid, grew up, um, spent a number of years with her family in Argentina, and um, you know one of her brothers, Steve Green, the, the singer, solo, that we've had the privilege of having here. Barbie, why don't you... Stand. We want to greet you now that the folks will see you here tonight. Welcome here. Barbie, did the family sing? Did you sing with, uh, is it David and, and Steve? So you all sang. Would you like to come up and do a duet with uh, your husband? No? Okay, all right. We're not surprised about that. Okay, would you help me welcome back our friend and scholar, Dr. Mark Bailey. Welcome here, my friend. Barbie was coming back from Argentina when she was uh, 16 years of age to finish high school because her dad uh, didn't want all the Argentines to continue to swarm around her, and there were some that uh, wanted to, and so it was protection for her uh, as well as finishing her schooling. Uh, So uh, the second day she was in the States, she came to church at the church where I attended, her grandmother attended. And I saw her and uh, met her and uh, asked her out. Uh, that evening after this, after this uh, service, I said, uh, uh, we were two seats apart, and the youth pastor said, uh, Mark, have you met uh, Barbara Green? And I said, uh, I, I know her family, and I've seen her family, but I have not met her personally. And so I was sitting in front of him, and she and her grandmother were sitting behind him, and uh, he tapped me on the shoulder and introduced us, and I thought, hmm... And uh, I said, how would you like to go out with the young people after church? Uh, there, there were no young people going out after church. Uh, but there, we, we normally did, so it wasn't really a lie. Uh, but we just hadn't arranged it yet. And I said uh, to her grandmother, I'll make sure uh, I get her home. And I was uh, a couple years ahead of her and had just graduated. And I was, we didn't have a college group in our church. We weren't large enough. We had a high school group. And I was working with the youth pastor. And uh, so uh, we, we, we normally did those kinds of things. So I, I promised to get her home and everything. So we had a car full, and uh, this was in Phoenix, Arizona. I took everybody home on the west side of Phoenix, uh, where I lived. And then uh, that gave me an excuse to be alone with her all the way to the east side of Phoenix, where her grandmother lived. And that first night, her second day in the States, we shared our testimonies, and God had just done a work in both of our hearts. And uh, we've been together now 43 years. So uh, that's the, the, way it, uh, the way it works. And she's been a trooper. She travels with me about 95% of the time. And I'm on the road a lot because of uh, ministry and because of the role that I have at Dallas Seminary and teaching and preaching in different places. And so it's a privilege to have her. We've spent more time in one room, uh, like a hotel room, than we have in our houses. 
And so uh, we, uh, we love uh, to be together, and uh, we have a good time. So thank you so much for your hospitality uh, throughout uh, uh, the weekend, and uh, we so appreciate this church, your pastor, and his family, and it's a privilege uh, to be here. I, I was in uh, Dallas in 1980 doing doctoral work, uh, working on my Ph.D. at the seminary. I was teaching at a Bible college in Phoenix at the time, and if you remember back, 1980 was a blistering summer as well, and especially in uh, Miami, Florida, as well as Dallas, Texas. And uh, it, it's out of that, that era, that, that summer, uh, in his book, No Wonder They Call Him the Savior, that Max Lucado tells a, a sad story of a lady by the name of Judith Bucknell. She, she lived in Coconut Grove, a stylish area of Miami where many lonely people pretended to be happy. On June the 9th of 1980, she was murdered. She was homicide number 106 that year. And we remember Judith Bucknell because uh, she kept a diary. She, she was not on drugs or welfare. She never went to jail. She was not a prostitute, but she offered her love to many men. She was certainly not a social outcast. She was respectable. She jogged. She hosted parties. She wore designer clothes, had an apartment overlooking the bay, and worried about the same things women her age worry about, getting old, getting fat, getting married, getting by. She was a successful secretary, but unsuccessful in life. She wrote in her diary, I see people together, and I'm so jealous I want to throw up. What about me? What about me? Another entry cries out, where are the men with the flowers and the music? Where are the men who call and ask for a genuine, actual date? I would love to have once before I pass through my life a loving relationship. In one of her last entries, said, who's going to love Judith Bucknell? I feel so old, unloved, unwanted, abandoned, used up. I want to cry and sleep forever. Uh, to hear the cry of loneliness in her writings. Uh, we feel the loneliness when uh, the mailbox is empty and we've been waiting for a letter. Uh, it may uh, be so tempting that some of you may want to sign up for email marketing lists just so you have somebody to send things to you. But we know the pain when the phone doesn't ring, and the door doesn't open, a loved one doesn't call. We understand facing life at times alone. I, I think it no mistake, if we're going to see God's hand in suffering, to understand that God has given us uh, the longest book of the Bible to, to help us manage our crying and to give us real meaning to our celebrations. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalms, the book of Psalms, the Hebrew hymn book, the Psalter. Psalm 13, Psalm 13. As you open your Bible, Psalms is the longest book of the Bible, and it contains two basic kinds of hymns. There are songs of praise, and there are psalms of lament. Uh, psalms of praise celebrate the goodness and the greatness of God. Psalms of lament record the extraordinary, honest cries of a heart groaning because of grief in this life. One of the greatest arguments for the reliability of the Bible, by the way, is the realism with which the Bible records our struggles of soul. Uh, trouble seems to be an inseparable feature of, of human existence this side of heaven. Inequities and injustice are integral part of our natural lives. 
And these are the themes that inspired the Psalms of Lament. We might call them the cries of the heart. I love what Charles Haddon Spurgeon said in his Treasury of David. Because of the sheer number of lament psalms, Spurgeon said, David's heart was more often out of tune than his harp. But he never allowed his heart to stay out of tune for very long. With the help of God, trouble transitioned to trust. Frustration was retuned to faith. And of this invincible trust in a lament psalm, Psalm 13 is one of the most eloquent of expressions. It's an individual psalm of lament, and let me give you the outline, and it's a classic psalm of lament as scholars have studied the Old Testament, and especially the psalms of praise and the psalms of lament. Uh, This is a very typical structure that you find. There's an opening address in which the psalmist cries out to God. That's followed by the lament proper, and that's where the psalmist in essence says, life is tough and I don't like it. Barbie and I have a friend, he's a president of another school, and he and his wife have gone through intense suffering as a result of an adopted daughter who has broken their heart time after time after time. And I'll never forget the illustration that they used in sharing with other evangelical presidents when we were together in a fellowship not long ago. And, and uh, he, he said life is very much like the two rails of a train. There is a, a rail of triumph uh, and there is a rail of trouble. And we on our, our, our train sort of rock back and forth in the moments between triumph and trouble between uh, the uh, explicit blessing of God in our lives and the, uh, uh, what we might call the, 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 the bummer moments of our lives. There is a, a, a track of victory, and there's also a rail of, uh, of incredible struggle. Uh, both of those are represented in the Psalms. And, and God wants to tune our hearts to know how to praise and celebrate the goodness and the greatness of God, but God also gives us almost half of the Psalms, are you ready for this, to teach us how to cry and to teach us how to trust in the midst of those tears. The lament proper. Out of the lament, there's that cry of the heart to God in petition. It's a cry for God to see our need. It's a cry of God to hear our prayers. And uh, we'll see that modeled in this little Psalm here in a moment. But there's always in the Psalms of Lament, there is a hinge that takes place. There is a a time when in the midst of the trouble, and yet God has not yet answered the prayer, there there is still, however, a a reach out of faith and a confession of trust in God. And so the confession of trust is usually the hinge in 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 the Psalm. Out of that, whether God has answered yet or not answered, then like the most all the psalms, with maybe one exception out of 150 psalms, they all end in praise. In fact, the Hebrew title for the book, Tehillim, comes from uh, the, the one time that plural is used in Psalm 145. It's a, it means the praises. And the, and the book of psalms in the Hebrew uh, scripture simply means the praises. Even though half of them are psalms of lament, they're rightfully called the praises. So with that as a background, let's look at how he uh, addresses God. Notice verse 1. How long, O Lord? There's his address. Four times in the opening lines he asks God, how long? Here is the cry of, of a hurting heart. His prayers have become a test of his patience. 
His desire uh, for God has degenerated into despair. And, and he's asking the time question, how long? How long? It represents the hurt. How long, O oh Lord, will you forget me forever? Do you hear the, 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 the cry? It's, it, it, it's more than a, a Judith Bucknell who doesn't know the Lord and has no place to turn. But here is the psalmist who knows where to go and worries that God will forget him forever. But there, there's a little ray of hope, however, in this opening, and that is that he still has the presence of mind to call on God. The Hebrew name for God in the passage is Yahweh. It's a meaning that scholars have debated, but it seems probably best to uh, go back to that passage where Moses asked God, you know, uh, who he is and what his name is and uh, who's calling. And, and he says, tell him, I am that I am. When we say it, we use the uh, first person like that. When, when God says who he is, he says, I am. Uh, but when we say it and when we write it and when the Hebrews wrote it, they wrote it as third-person singular, he is. God would say, I am that I am. In Hebrew, that's echya. But we would say Yahweh, which is third-person singular, he is. I asked one of our Hebrew scholars about the book of Hebrews chapter 11 because without faith it's impossible to please God. But he that cometh to God must first believe that he is. I said, is that a play for a Hebrew audience off the name of God? He says, I really think that's true. Uh, God says, I am. Our response of faith is, he really is. We talked about the question of the existence of God this morning and seeing God's hand in suffering. Watch how David deals with it in this psalm. There, there is a hope. There's a faint glimmer of hope expressed in the fact that it is Yahweh uh, to which David brings his cries. No matter how bad life gets, one can always turn to God. And the oxymoronic nature of our life is even if we're not sure he hears, in hope, like David, we dare reach out in case he just might. Uh, I find at times in my life, I, I ask God the why now question, and then I ask God, please help. And at times it's come out of a cry, oh God, please, please help. Uh, there's the hurt and there's the hope, and that's the initial address. But now comes the lament, and I want you to see it in the second half of verse 1 and in verse 2. Uh, the, the blatant uh, honesty of, of David's heart cries out from, from what could be described as the dark hollows of doubt and the back hills of discouragement. With questions, as we'll see, that seem to border on impugning the very care and protection of God. In the Psalter, the book of Psalms, the lament reflects the struggles in, in the three primary relationships of our lives. The, the, those three primary relationships are the intra-personal relationship because I have a relationship with me, and I don't always like me. I don't know about you, but I, I struggle with me. I, 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 I at times struggle with God, an interpersonal relationship with the divine one. And, and the irony is that at times we have struggles with somebody else. This psalm, Psalm 13, is a classic model to see all three. 
The first is the fear of being forgotten. And this obviously is addressed to God. So here is his God problem in plain language. One of the fears that he faces and one of the fears that we face is that God has forgotten. It seems that we even exist. Where is God, we ask, in the midst of suffering? The irony is that if David really believed God had forgotten him forever, then why pray? Maybe Martin Luther was right when he said, hope despairs, but despair hopes. Nowhere is the tension between experience and prayer more in view than in our cries of the heart, especially prayers for help from a lamenting heart. See, a key question that needs to be raised here in the fear that God might forget, the fear that God has overlooked us, The question is, is it accidental or is it intentional? Now think about this. If it's accidental, then what does this say about the mind of God and his omniscience? The random thought of an omniscient God having a lapse in memory borders on blasphemy. But you and I both know that thought does come. God, do you know? (laughs) And at times we pray as if he doesn't. God, you need to know that. Oh, yeah, he already does. (laughs) But, but But we feel it. But the other is, if it's intentional, then the possibility exists that he may be withholding favor from us because of divine displeasure. And it's an act of discipline for our disobedience. See, Proverbs 28, 9 is one of those passages I love, but I don't like. Do you have any of those? David said, oh, how I love thy law, but I don't like everything I read because it's very convicting. And Proverbs 28, 9 says, if I uh, turn my ear away from hearing the law of God, even my prayer becomes an abomination to God. That's a very convicting passage. Some people say, well, my Bible study is not too good, but I pray a lot. If I'm not willing to listen to God, God doesn't want to be listening to me. He, he wants dialogue, not a monologue. He wants a relationship, not simply my ritual. And if I'm praying without the word, then I'm not praying according to his will, because I don't know his will. So God says, if you turn your ear away from hearing this book, your prayers actually become sin. That would be an interesting message title, Pastor Stephen. When prayer becomes sinful. You see, if if I don't want to hear God, God doesn't want to hear me. And so if I'm praying and I'm not getting through, is the question, has God disciplined me for disobedience purposes? Whether it's accidental or intentional, there is the fear of being forgotten by a holy God. But there's a second how long that gets raised here, and that is the, the, the fear of being rejected. This is the I section of the passage. How long, O Lord, will you hide your face from me? He says. The fear of being rejected so that I'm in the difficult spot. And hiding one's face in the Old Testament times was a a sign of displeasure. If we took you to Israel on one of our tours that we take uh, people and students over there, and we would take you to the Western Wall there is a way that you watch the, the uh, Jews address that wall, and, and, and they, they back up because they never want to turn their back on the wall because for them it's a symbol of turning their back on God. And so they back out 
so that they continue to have a face toward God. Throughout the Old Testament, remember that ironic prayer in number six. Uh, may, may, uh, his, make his face to shine upon you is a part of the ironic blessing. And be gracious. When, when Jonah prayed that, that he would again turn his face toward the holy temple. That concept of facing forward. Some of you have had kids or grandkids I remember when my uh, mother-in-law was visiting us when our oldest was very young and she was uh, talking to us and uh, he was wanting to talk to her. And so he grabbed her cheeks and turned her face and he says, watch my teeth. He he wanted a face-to-face relationship with uh, Barbie's mom at the time. Watch my teeth. When a baby doesn't want to uh, eat the vegetables Isn't it amazing how their lips can pierce, their eyes can close, they turn their head as if I'll ignore you and you'll go away. And that's because we lie to those kids all the time. We give them those little green stuff in that little jar and we go, mmm, good. (laughs) How come you don't eat it becomes the question. That's another issue. But, but, but be, be gracious, be blessed, restore, all of these terms throughout the Old Testament, this concept of having a face toward. But he says, how long will you hide your face from me? There's a fear that, that I have been rejected by a holy and loving God. And, and notice he, he expounds that in verse 2. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? In the Hebrew language, the word for counsel here is the, uh, has the meaning of stacking up of thoughts. It's like a stack of thoughts as if you were uh, uh, stacking files on a desk that have been piled high. There seems to be no relief to his soul. Now, there's a bit of humor here. He says, how long do I have to be my own counselor? You know, you know you're in trouble when you come in and say, I've got a problem. And then you say, what is it? You know, when you're your own counselor, you're in a heap of trouble. He says, how long do I have to be my own counselor? Uh, having sorrow in my heart all the day. You know you're in trouble when you're sitting on both sides of the counselor's desk. If wisdom is found in a multitude of counselors, as Proverbs says, and that number is reduced to one and that number is reduced to you or me, we're in a heap of hurt. Or as we say in East Texas, you're in deep yogurt. You're in deep yogurt. In the Hebrew commentary on this section, the Sincino commentary, it says this, and I love it. Whether the fear is forever or the dilemma is daily, the sorrow seems like a straitjacket from which there is no escape. As the consequence of planning in sleepless nights, his heart is heavy and weary during the day. This is what older saints called the dark night of the soul. But there's a third reason for the lament, not only the fear of being forgotten, the fear of being rejected, but here's the they section of it, the fear of being afflicted. This is the day, the, the they side of the lament. Notice he goes on with that fourth, how long, how long will my enemy be exalted over me? Literally, how long will my enemy have the upper hand? When you think of the they's of your life, sometimes they're human and the persecution is physical. If it's not physical, it may be verbal or emotional. And it's, it's the they's that are causing the hurt or the distress. Sometimes the they's of our lives are mental and the pressure is psychological. And we're just not thinking well and those thoughts aren't good. Uh, sometimes it even gets spiritual, it gets demonic. 
and the powers are supernatural. Whether they're physical or psychological or supernatural, it's the day, the days of our life and the affliction that comes through that. And especially those who uh, exalt in that upper hand. Spurgeon again notes, the laughter of a foe grates horribly upon the ears of grief. Nothing is worse than a gloating enemy. Nothing is worse. Whether the problem lies with God, with David, or the enemy, all three have one thing in common in this psalm, and that is the extraordinary, at least it seems, the extraordinary length of time, because the torment seems endless. See, the fear and the frustration, David says, will it get to that point of being forever? You hear the cry? That's the lament of a crying heart. I have a problem with God. I have a problem, and it's me. I have a problem, and it's them. It is they. Well, the psalmist doesn't stop there. Look, look at verse 3. He moves to the petition. And first of all, his requests. His requests are to, to hear or see him. His request is to help or save him. Notice the phrases that he uses. Uh, number one is to hear, and the second one is to help. And he says, consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Consider, pay, pay attention, look at me, and hear me, O Lord my God. And then he says this, enlighten my eyes. Here's the prayer for the eyes of faith. To think that God has forgotten him is to lose sight of God or how God acts. And so he says, consider me and answer me, O Lord my God. Enlighten my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Watch these reasons. They start stacking up. To sleep the sleep of death. God, if if you don't help me, I'm going to die. I'm going to go to sleep and I'm never going to wake up. And guess what, Lord? My my enemy's going to say, we win. Notice he comes back, I sleep the sleep of death, that's the problem with me. The enemy, that's the problem of of the them. If they say, I've overcome him. And then he says, Lord, by the way, lest my adversaries rejoice when I'm shaken. Now, I love this. The psalmist uses both his own need and the reputation of God as points in his argument. This is insightful. The psalmist is bold enough to argue that if God doesn't help him, then God's reputation is on the line. The enemy's going to think he's stronger than the God of David. He's going to ridicule anyone who has placed his faith and trust in him, and hence the love and the power of God are on the line. Question, when was the last time you prayed, God, you've got to get me out of this because your testimony is on the line? I love the Old Testament saints. David does it here. Daniel does it in his, in his book. And, and, and they argue with God. God, if you don't deal with this, you're going to be in trouble. The enemy's going to think they're more powerful than you. I I sort of love it. It's sort of pulling a grenade and rolling it down the table for God to deal with. God, it's not me alone here. I'm one of yours. If we're having a problem, they're going to think bad about you too. Now, you got to be pretty bold to do that. Remember, Abraham said, Lord, uh, how many could we get by with in Sodom and Gomorrah and you not uh, destroy it yet? Fifty? Okay, let's, let's go lower than that. You know, sort of like name that tune in two notes or something like that. You know, how how, how can I bargain against and with God? Because it's God's name that's on the line. 
Now, you've got to have a pretty good walk with God to know when God's going to just tell you, shut up and go away. Or, you're right. And I do need to answer that prayer. Because my reputation is on the line. When was the last time you said, Lord, the reason I'm praying this is because it's your testimony that's at stake in my life, not mine. It's not the I, it's not the them, it's the you about whom I'm most concerned. That's the, uh, the requests and the reasons in his petition. But here comes the hinge. Remember we told you it was a confession of trust? Notice the foundation of his trust in verse 5. Edward Markabin, a piece he wrote called, Their Choices are the Hinges of Destiny. Here comes the hinge. Here comes the choice. Here is David's hinge between his hurt and his hope, between his trouble and his trust, between his sighing and his singing. Number one is the foundation of his trust. He says, but, notice it, the contrast, but, but I have trusted in thy loving kindness. That's a wonderful Hebrew word. I'm sure you've heard it before. It's, it's the Hebrew word chesed. And when you say it, you've got to get your paper wet. Okay? It's, it's a guttural sound. It, it's the character of God. And, and, and the best way we know how to translate it, we almost can paraphrase it better than translate it, but loving kindness is the way the New American Standard translates it. It, 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 is, a, it is a word that describes the character of God who is both loyal to his covenant and loving to his covenant people. It really speaks of covenant loyalty, covenant faithfulness. That God is loving and therefore he's committed himself to a covenant in which he's also going to act graciously or kindly. It's probably the best Old Testament word for grace that I know. But notice, I'm going to trust in the chesed of God. There's, there's his, his, his ground of trust. And he confesses it. God, I don't care what happens. You may not have answered my, question, my, my, my problem yet. You may not have solved it. You may not have answered my prayer yet. But I'm going to trust in your character. The Hesed character of God. And as a result of that, as a result of that, the faith of his trust is that my heart will rejoice in thy salvation. In the parallel, in this poetic sense, the, the Hesed is the ground for his salvation. The, the trust is the basis for his song. If the first is God's character, this is God's actions. I love Oswald Chambers who said, Faith never knows where it's being led, but it loves and knows the one who is leading. Isn't that a great statement? Faith never knows where it is being led, but genuine faith knows, loves and knows the one who's leading. As far as we know, David, as he pens this, isn't out of the woods yet. We're not told the context of when he is. We know that he was fleeing from Saul. We know that he'd had enemies in the politics and the, in the religious realm of his kingdom. We, we know he, he writes this for the choir director to teach to the choir to, to, to model this individual prayer of lament in the community of Israel. But he comes, and the reason it's for the choir director is that uh, it doesn't stop with my faith. It, uh, it spills over into the melodies in the rejoicing of the heart. The foundation of his trust is the character of God. The faith in his trust is that God alone can save. We love that passage, Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you are saved through faith. Not of yourselves, it's the gift of God. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his masterpiece. We're his poema in Greek. We're his creative 
peace created in Christ Jesus unto good works. Can I give you a little grammar tonight? There's a little phrase, for by grace you have been saved. It is a perfect periphrastic circumlocution. And you can get shots for that at the hospital. A, a perfect periphrastic circumlocution construction is this. It takes a perfect tense, which means it happened in the past, but it has abiding results, and it puts another phrase with it, hence the paraphrastic, around a phrase around, uh, paraphrastic, like paralegal, alongside. Here's a phrase that's put alongside. It's a paraphrastic statement that puts a present tense verb to be with a perfect tense, you have been, and basically it could be translated, you are in a state of having been saved, and there you are. And it's a circumlocution, which is a big fancy word to say he wraps all of that so he can make one statement. For by grace you are in a position, in a state of salvation that has happened to you in the past, and it's continuing in the present because of the grace of God to which you have responded to in faith. And that's why you're saved. It has nothing to do with your merit. It's not of your works, not of works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he has saved us. Not of works, otherwise we'd boast about it. It's God's loving kindness. It's God's grace. It's God's salvation that he has brought in us because of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's the basis of my trust, and it's also not only the basis of my trust, it's also the expression of my trust. Well, if that's true, and that's the confidence, then he says, let me finish with the tehillim, the praises. The vow of praise, first of all, in his music. In his music, I will sing to the Lord, future tense, I will sing to the Lord because, as the text in front of me says, because he has dealt bountifully with me. In the Hebrew, it's the future. uh, Because uh, I will sing to the Lord when he will have dealt bountifully with me. It's the psalm of, of praise. It's the psalm of anticipation of the salvation of God. When you put verses five and six together, notice it starts with trust. It then moves to rejoicing. Now the front line of this one is singing. And then it goes back to the way God has acted. It's a little bit of an inversion, sort of like a target zone with outside circle and inside circle in terms of its structure. I have trusted, therefore my heart will rejoice. I will sing to the Lord. Why? Because the motivation is he has dealt bountifully with me. I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. I... uh, I didn't ask the pastor to introduce Barbie again and tell you the family connection, but I'm I'm married into a phenomenal family. Her her mom and dad, who are both living with the Lord right now, are unbelievable in their unconditional love for me. I married the oldest, and so I was the first son-in-law. Yeah. Jerry Hill married the, uh, the fifth child, Grace, and Jim Hill is a member here and attends here. We saw him this morning, and Jerry is his brother, who's a pastor up in Carney's Point, New Jersey. And uh, there's three boys in between, Randy, 
who is a, a missionary policeman, goes all over the world training police officers in tactics and then preaches the gospel and sees hundreds saved on a regular basis. He's been in, in and out of Iraq. He was the chaplain for the Guatemalan police force, just got back from Mexico. You know their needs. Uh, he's all over the world. He's, he's a, a rough-riding, uh, Wells Fargo kind of missionary. Uh, Steve is the middle son, and uh, he's the singer, and David is his manager, the youngest one, and they've worked together for over 25 years now, and unbelievable joy to be a part of that family. We were there at Steve's house for Christmas. My son was a music major at Moody, and he's a worship pastor now, my oldest. And uh, after dinner one uh, Christmas, he uh, said to Josh, you know, come, come with me. Let's, let's go in the living room. I, I want to see what kind of an instrument God's given you. So uh, there goes Josh following Uncle Steve into the uh, living room, and we all just sort of go, what is this about? So we all just sort of snuck around and watched, and Steve wanted to know his range, and so Steve is working on the piano and doing the scales and, uh, you know, oh, you know, and just driving it up. And that's why when I sing, they don't call it special music. <laughs> and they just, he just kept going, kept going, kept going, and, uh, and, and, and God you know, gave my son a voice as well, and he did one of his recitals as a tenor and one as a baritone when he was a music major. And uh, so Steve was testing out the God-given instrument and pushing him up there. And, and then Steve said this, because Steve's a high tenor, and he said, if you're going to be a high tenor, you've got to have an attitude. You know, and Josh is sort of just pretty laid back, and he goes, what do you mean? He says, if, if you're going to hit that high note, you, you, you just got to go for it. And there, there's a point at which you almost get mad at it. You know, and he's describing the guts that it takes to hit the high note in concert. And I'll never forget, he, he clenched his fist like this, and, 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 and he says, if you're going to hit that high note, you, you just got to go for it like this. And uh, you've ever heard Steve sing a mighty fortress a cappella. He goes up, modulates it to a different key every time. Uh, when he hits it, it's like, it's this. I thought about that. I will uh, sing praises to the Lord. Why? Because he's dealt bountifully with me. And he will deal bountifully with me. We sing that chorus, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. How long? Forever. I will sing. I will sing. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness. Thy faithfulness. Same word, hested. With my mouth will I make known thy faithfulness to all generations. It becomes not only the theme of my life, it becomes the theme of my transfer of that life to the next second and third and fourth generations. Can I ask you tonight, if you're starting to see the hand of God in the midst of the trouble, where else are you going to go? <laughs> if you're lost in the forest, you don't wait to see somebody before you cry for help. That doesn't make any sense. Somebody want to, wants to know there's a God before they're ever willing to pray to the God that they haven't yet met. Why not take the psalmist at face value and say, how long? Oh, Lord, I, I feel like you forgot me. Have you forgotten me forever? How, how long will, 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 will I be my own counselor? How, how long will my enemies triumph over me? God, how, how long will you hide your face from me? Uh, but that's not where it stops. Hear and help 
Uh, See me, O Lord, and and save me. Why? Because I'm going to trust in your loving kindness. I'm going to rejoice that you're my salvation. And I will sing of the mercies of the Lord. I'm going to sing. And he wants you to have that kind of an attitude of hope and trust in him. Could we do that together this week? Would you pray that I'll live that way this week? And can I pray that you'll live that way this week? Let's pray. Father, just a little psalm, but it's an instruction to us. It really is a guide for prayer and praise. It's a guide to help us process grief. It's a, it's a guide to process pain. It's the how-to of what we were talking about this morning. How do I see your hand in the midst of my difficulties? You've given us your word. You've given us a script of how to process it. Forgive us for going elsewhere to have our needs met. To all of the false fillers, the false comforters, the false counselors, the false substances that really won't answer the cry of the heart. May we know our hope is in you, Lord. Our hope is in you. And even if you haven't yet answered, may we have the gutsy faith to clench our fist, so to speak, and live confident that you will deliver. And therefore, you are now even presently worthy of all of our praise. We ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Mark, so much for that feast in the Word of God. What a, what a privilege it has been to have been, to have been fed by uh, you today as God has used you to take us to the Word. And now Psalm 13. Um, what great treasure. Thank you for interpreting it, for outlining it, for conjugating it, for illustrating it, and applying it. And uh, just encouraging us along the way. Thank you so much for that. Let's pray together. Thank you, Father, for the privilege of opening the word together as a flock. Singing and then studying a a, a song written by a, a poet from so many years ago. That still resonates in our hearts because we ask the same things and wonder the same thoughts. Thank you for the truth that your word is indeed alive. It's powerful. May it, even this week, as Mark suggested, uh, do that work in our hearts and lives as we live for you in these coming days. We pray it in Jesus' name.